invite you to take your scriptures and turn to the Matthew chapter 26 passage we read a little earlier. We're going to key in on the concept of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God today. Have you ever noticed how important at times where you sit or where you're seated uh, begins to be? Um, the seat you have and where you have it, often in our culture anyways, um, is symbolic. It's symbolic of power, authority, and even honor. Um, that's an example of that would be politics. If you hear someone say that I have a seat in the house, it's, they're not talking about their living room. In politics, that means that they are in the House of Representatives. They have a seat in the Senate. And with those Seats go power and authority. Um, in business, um, having a seat on a specific committee in your company or having a seat on a board uh, within that com- board of directors, it demonstrates that you have power, that you have influence. Um, in law, you know that we talk about the judge's chair, and even the Bible speaks of the judgment seat. Because when you sit in that, you are the one who has the authority, even at times, over whether people will live or die. In music, uh, they have in the band and orchestra, my sister Michelle played trumpet, and she sat first chair. In other words, there were a a number of trumpet players, but she was the best. First chair. It it was a position that she had of honor because of her talent. Um, In airlines, and if you've ever flown, and I know most of you probably have, um, you either sit in coach, and by the way, I found out what coach meant. I always wondered why. I, a lot of people say economy now, and that's probably just about the same thing. And that's the cheaper seat, because when you rode coach, it came from riding on a stagecoach pulled by horses. Not exactly the most comfortable and easy place or thing to do, but coach, it's not as good, the idea, as what? Flying? Yeah, first class, and there's a reason with that. So if you have a seat in first class, and all the peons in the coach, right? And they pull a little curtain because you're not as important, right? And you sit back there and they get really cool food and you get a cracker. That's the way it works. But you know how powerful and important you are, how much honor you have on that plane based on where you're seated. Uh, going to a wedding, right? The bride and groom have their own chairs or seats right in front, their own little table, nobody else is there. And then based on your intimacy or your relationship with them, right? How close you are. You're honored by sitting in a table that's closest to the bride and groom. But that's how our culture works. Where you're seated makes or communicates something. It communicates power and position, authority, honor. It symbolizes relationship because proximity often equals or expresses intimacy. Now, what was, is true in the 21st century was also true in the first century. And Jesus alluded to that numerous times. Uh, In Luke chapter 14, he tells the parable of the wedding feast. And in it, he gives instructions when you're invited to, to go to a wedding. He says, don't go in and take the best seat. And it's literally first chair. He says, don't seek to get the first chair, the seat of honor, because that's what the religious leaders like to do. They like to show off their position and how people thought of them. He says, don't go in and take the seat of honor, 
Luke 14. He says, but sit in the lower seat, the seat of shame, literally. Uh, the one that's not honored, because here's what happens. If you take the high seat and someone who's more honorable, literally in the Greek, more honorable than you comes in, guess what they're going to tell you to do? You're going to have to get out of that chair and move down to this one, right? Because even in first century, and when you went to a wedding, there were seats, and they were graduated, so to speak, based on your position or your relationship with the bride or groom, and they came with honor. James 2, James himself warns of this in church, He says, don't say to the rich guy who comes into your church, hey, sit over here in a good place, but this is how you treat the poor guy. Hey, sit over here at my feet, he says. In other words, hey, if you don't have any money and you can't contribute, then you get a back chair seat, right? A back seat. (laughs) That's not how it works in the Bible. That's not how Christians should be. But the point of it is, is that where you sit matters. Now, maybe you don't realize this, but it's true. That your spiritual life, let me say it stronger, your eternal destiny is dependent on where Jesus is sitting today. Now, in the Apostles' Creed, which is ancient and has been recited for centuries, the last part of it goes like this. Speaking of Jesus, who was crucified, died, and was buried He descended into Hades, and on the third day he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It's part of the apostles. From the very earliest Christianity, they knew, the apostles knew, the early church knew how crucial Jesus sitting where he sat at the right hand of God was so important. That very sentence, the amazing, and I'm going to show you just how, the amazing reality of Jesus' identity sitting at the right hand of God, listen to this, was the last straw with the religious leaders. When they heard him say that, they decided that he needed to be crucified. In our text, it was on the night that Jesus was arrested. He is brought in the middle of the night, which was against Sanhedrin rules, but they did it. Uh, They brought Jesus late at night and had a trial. Surely not all the members of the Sanhedrin, which were 70, didn't make it, probably. And they have a trial, and they're asking Jesus questions. And as we read it this morning, witnesses were brought, and they couldn't get witnesses to agree with one another. I think he said this. No, I think he said this. Well, this is what he did. And they couldn't come and agree. They couldn't get him to... And it was frustrating, the high priest, because they really wanted Jesus dead. (laughs) But they couldn't get it because the witnesses conflicted with one another. And so finally, the high priest is fed up with that. And here's what he says. He brings Jesus under oath. And any time you invoke the name of the living God, the person that you do that to who's being tried has to make an answer. Because up until now, Jesus had remained silent, which is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And he hadn't needed to say anything really because the witnesses were bogus. But here the high priest says to Jesus in verse 63, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Look how those two things are the same. See, the Christ, the Son of God. The second one explains the first one. And it means Christ equals Son of God equals King equals Messiah. Here's what the high priest is saying. Listen, Jesus, we're tired of fooling around. We're going to come to the question, the crucial thing about who you are. Here's the question. And we would say it today this way. Are you really the king that has been promised to us in Scripture or not? In Scripture or not? Now note, Jesus' answer is crucial. Stay with me. The answer Jesus gives to that crucial identity question 
Here's how powerful it is. If you read past it, you might not think it's that big a deal. It's so powerful that upon hearing it, the high priest takes his robes, which would have been incredibly expensive, and he takes them and he rips them. Now, in Leviticus, if you're familiar with all the technicalities of Torah, there are only certain occasions that you could rip your clothes or tear your clothes. When you had sinned greatly, when you had sorrow and loss almost beyond comprehension, or you were in the presence of someone who committed blasphemy. The high priest considers what Jesus says about himself to be blasphemy. It was a cause to rip his robes. He was, in his heart at least, he outwardly anguished that Jesus would say such things about himself. And, and, and therefore the trial now comes to an end. They don't need to go on anymore. There's no more witnesses needed. Nobody else needs to come in. There's no, the only now is the decision which is obvious to everyone. And that decision is this, that he is deserving of death. We would say today, Jesus in one fell stroke got the capital punishment sentence. So he's going to be sentenced to death. And before they even carry out the sentence, they start spitting on him. And they start slapping him in the face and taunting him and mocking him and beating him. And you have to ask, what, are in, what is in those words? What is it that Jesus could have possibly said to provoke such a response? Well, let's look at it. From now on, verse 64 says, Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man. That was his own name for himself. It was taken from the book of Daniel. Now... From now on, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That is a direct quote from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And the picture of Daniel's vision was a person like no other person, and he is called the Son of Man. And he is given the privilege, not of descending, but ascending, ascending from the earth to heaven and being honored, and he's going to get the greatest honor. He is going to get the Ancient of Days is going to let him be near him and sit with him permanently forever. And Jesus says, you know the guy in that vision, the one that gets to sit next to God? That's me, he says. So here's what he's claiming. Here's why the statement is so provocative. Here's what he says. I am claiming to be king but not just king, I'm king of Israel. But more than that, I am claiming to have the chair next to God's. I am claiming to be the king and to sit where angels are not even permitted to go. I'm not just a man. I'm not just a David-like figure only. I am the son of man. I am the son of God. I am the one who sits on the throne next to God. And we would know this today because he is God. To them, because they didn't believe, see, that was blasphemy. Sitting at the right hand of God, what does it communicate? Well, Jesus is communicating this. I have power. You don't, although you look like you do in this trial. You don't have power, I do. You don't have authority, I do. I have the honor. I have unrivaled power. I am greater than anyone else who has ever lived. Can you imagine? That's what he's saying. Now look, the response to the religious leaders is this. And we're not shocked, are we? They don't believe in Jesus. The whole thing's a circus. They're doing it just to have him crucified. Luke 22, same event, adds these words. If you are the Christ, they say to Jesus, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, Jesus says, 
you will not believe. And the word not is a double negative. It's the strongest way possible that you could say never, never. Jesus says, you're not asking me because you want to find out if it's true. You're asking me because when I give you the answer, you want to kill me. That's what he's saying. You're not going to believe. There's no way you're going to believe. And there are people like that today, isn't there? You might be here this morning and you're listening to me and say, okay, PW, I get it. Jesus says he's the king. He's the king at God's right hand. I know who that is. But they don't believe. And that's the reason why they treat him this way. They don't believe him. They start spitting on him, mocking him, slapping him, hitting him. See, I get it. Their belief determined their behavior. They didn't believe who he said he was. And they considered it blasphemy. And so they treat him accordingly. That's right. But hold on. Did you ever notice what the very next paragraph in our text is? We didn't read it. But the very next paragraph is someone who does believe it. It's Peter. You see, the religious, pleader, believe, uh, religious leaders, they don't believe in Jesus. Therefore, they want him dead. But Peter, he's Jesus' number one disciple. He is the man who a few days earlier told that if everyone else denies you, I will stay with you. If I have to go to prison and to death, I will be faithful to you. This is the very man in this gospel. In Matthew 16, 16, who said this, you are the Christ, the king. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And it was a revelation given to him by God, Jesus says. This is Peter. And he would be the first one to stand up and say, hey, I believe that you are that king. You're the one who's at the right hand of God. You are the king. I believe that. But in the paragraph following the religious leaders, you know what he does? Look at it. Verse 70, but he denied it. Verse 72, again he denied. Verse 75, counts him for us because it was prophesied by Jesus that it would happen. The third, he denied him three times, verse 75 says. And the first time he says, I don't know what you mean. In other words, I'm trying to you know, get you off my back. Then he says, I don't know the man. I don't know the man twice. Listen, Peter is so denying Jesus that he won't mention that he knows his name. He has limited Jesus down to the phrase, I don't know the man. He won't even say Jesus' name. That's how far he's gotten but he believes it. He believes that Jesus is the king, but he doesn't behave it. Is that you? See? Oh, I believe, and if we asked you and took a survey and walked around, I believe that Jesus Christ is the king. Jewish Orthodox prayer in the Amidah start with this Hebrew phrase, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Malek Yahalam. Blessed are you, Lord God, king of the universe. They, they said it every day, every prayer at the beginning. And, and maybe you do. Maybe you say, I, I believe that. I really, truly believe that Jesus is the king. I believe he's the guy that you're talking. I believe he's at God's right hand. I believe that today. But the question is, do you behave it? The number one disciple believed all the facts about it but denied Jesus three times. See, you could say, I'm be I believe he's seated in the heavenlies on the throne of God, the Father Almighty. But the real question is, does he sit on the throne of your life and heart? See, you may declare Jesus as king with your words, but do you declare him, or rather deny him, as king with your walk? See, 
You may say, I believe the Apostles' Creed, but it is it your creed. What about the Apostles' deed? See, Does Jesus rule your relationships? Let's get specific. Maybe you're a young person, you're here today, or you're listening from home, and you're a single. Let me ask you, does he, does he rule your relationships when it comes to choosing who you'll date? My parents taught me that dating is preparation for marriage. And they taught me very early that you don't date lost people because you don't want to end up marrying them. And once you get involved and emotionally attracted and all that kind of stuff, it's hard to turn back. But we have people, that, you know what, today, let me tell you, and you, now that you've got involved, you don't want to break it off and you don't know where it's headed. But you know what scripture says about being unequally yoked and you know that's not the right thing to do. But there are so many who do it. Why? Because in the end, you believe he's king, but he really doesn't rule. He doesn't rule your relationships. He doesn't rule. See, that's why spouses speak to one another the way they do and why they argue together and why they can't see and they're so blind to their own selfishness because they're always pointing the finger at the other person and the things they do wrong in the marriage. But see, you can't see. Why? Because you say he's king, but you don't live it in your marriage. And how you discipline or not discipline your children and parents who grow up and let their kids see the first thing that goes in the priorities of someone is they put God to the side. He's marginalized. And see, I got to do homework or take a test or I got to be in sports events. And see, those are the things that take first. And God always is pushed to the side. And what we teach our kids is that he's king. And let's say it at church, but we won't live it when the choices we have every day. Does he have power over your priorities? Oh, seek first the kingdom. I believe that verse. Do you really? Is he Christ over your calendar? Who is the one who really controls, has the say in your life? During college, I lived in England. My dad had a job there for seven years, and I'd go there, and I'd been to Buckingham Palace, and um, I know about the royal family, and you do too. They're in the news, (laughs) probably not in a good way lately. But I found out this pretty early on, that they have a king, well, then right now, you know, they have a queen, she's been there for a long time, Prince Charles, Prince of Wales, and you've heard the other ones who are in the news, and they're royalty, right? But you know, truthfully, that they have no power. They sit on the throne, and there is one in Buckingham Palace, there is a throne, it's been there for a long time, and they sit on it, and they have the diadems and the scepters, and they go married in Westminster Abbey, and all those great things that kings and queens and princes and princesses get to do, but you know, they're figureheads, you know what that is, right? Is that you have the look the part, but you don't have anything that goes with it. See, I found out pretty early on that the seat of power, the seat of power, is not in Buckingham Palace, but at 10 Downing Street. Because the person with the power is not really the queen, it's the prime minister. And I have found that reality to be so true in a lot of Christians' lives. See, that Jesus is the king, but in your life, if you're honest, he's just the figurehead. I mean, he... He holds the scepter, he wears the diadem, and even there's a throne somewhere in your place of your life for him. But when it comes down to who really controls, who really has say, you're the prime minister, aren't you? You're the one who has authority. Are you familiar with the term called puppet king? 
When you're a puppet king, you sit on the throne, you look like you have the part, but somebody else behind the scenes that nobody knows is really calling the shots. So you may have the authority and execute the authority, but someone else is telling you what you need to do. And listen, that's how we like at times to treat Jesus. See, who's really pulling the strings, really? Do you think that you can treat Jesus and, and say, hey, you're a king, but Monday through Saturday, I'm on the throne? See, Peter thought he could do that because the reality is this. There's only really three options when it comes to responding to the claim that Jesus is king. Religious leaders said, don't believe it, don't behave it. Peter said, believe it, don't behave it. But the one that Jesus is looking for, the one that he is worthy of, the one that he is deserving of, is that you believe it and you behave it. So can I finish this morning? What would it look like? What does it look like when someone believes that Jesus is the king at God's right hand and actually behaves it? We don't have time, but if you come to my small group tonight at 6 in the auditorium, we're going to take a lot of the references that we can't take the time to look at today, and we're going to explore Jesus at God's right hand even more and its implications. But I want to point out one. See, in the early church, it was the gospel message all throughout the book of Acts. Jesus being at God's right hand was crucial. All throughout Paul's letters and Peter's epistle, in numerous places, 15 times in all, the New Testament goes over and over again, this truth, Jesus is at God's right hand. But one that I want to particularly point out today, and I'll have you turn there if you would, is Colossians chapter 3. You can't get probably in the New Testament, any more clear passage about what it means to believe he's king and behave he's king at the same time. Let me read it for you. Verses 1 through 4 of Colossians 3. If you then, and it's not if meaning I don't know for sure or it's uncertain. It's a first class Greek conditional phrase and it better translated since or because. So let me read it that way. There's no doubt here. This is, this is the reality that the Colossians believe. See? Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Listen to this. Where Christ is. See how important it is? Where is he? Paul's going to tell us. He is seated at the right hand of God. So what does that mean? Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. What's the reason? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, see that? If he's king, he is everything to you. He is your life. When you're Christ who is, in Christ, don't forget, King, let's read it. When King Jesus, who is your life, appears, when he comes someday, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, let me couple that with and make a point. Ephesians chapter 2 says it even more clearly on this one point. If you look at the verse, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6 says, and raised Listen, this is, Colossians is about where Jesus sits. Now, I want you to be, I'm going to try to tell you, and you won't be able to do it on your own probably, but I want you to be blown away. (laughs) 
I want you, and if you think about it throughout the week, the more you do, the more you will. Listen, we know where Jesus is now. We've, we've studied it, right? He is at the right hand of God. That's where he's seated. But I'm going to tell you something that I hope blows your mind. Listen to this verse. And raised us up, crucial phrase, with him. Watch. And seated us with him. Does that blow your mind? Jesus is seated next to God. And if you are in him, guess where you are? Next to Jesus. His God's chair, Jesus' chair, your chair, your chair. And you seated with him in the heavenly places in King Jesus. So if Jesus is your king and you believe that and you behave that, you couldn't be any more closer to Jesus than that. You couldn't be. And you know what it communicates? If Jesus, where he sits, communicates, listen, it also communicates where you sit. Do you know where you sit? It is better than first chair in the orchestra. It is better than a first-class ticket on Delta Airlines. It is better than the chair behind the desk in the Oval Office. You sit with the king of creation. You sit next to God who paid for your sin on Calvary. That's intimacy, isn't it? That's relationship. That's power and authority. It's his, and because you're with him, it's yours. You are next to him. Again, when I was in England, my dad's company would also often get these really nice tickets to events in London, and one of them was that I got to go to was the Royal Tournament. And I just took the seats, and Chris was there with me, and we were, it was really nice seats. I mean, of course, companies pay for nicer seats than individuals usually. So I'm sitting there, I'm saying, like, this is great. And it's a Royal Tournament, it's a huge arena, and it's all filled with dirt and horses. They come out and they do military things, and they have horse uh, events where people are doing, they have shields and armor on. It's kind of like back in the day kind of thing. It's awesome. They do it annually. They've done it for, they stopped doing it and they moved it to a different venue now, but they had been doing it for over 110 years. So it was kind of an annual big deal. I mean, it was packed in there, thousands of people. So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden it's about ready to start and they have everybody stand up because Queen Elizabeth was there and she's coming in and I'm going like, oh, this is cool. I, I didn't know this was going to happen. And not only is it cool, but she's coming down the stairs that go by my chair. I'm going like, how cool is that? And so she's coming by, and as she walked by, I reached out and grabbed her, and I said, I wanted to talk. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> I thought about it. I thought about it. So she walked by me, and I'm going like, wow, this is really cool. And she walked down literally just a few more rows. I mean, and that was the queen's box. And it was literally between me and Sandy. That's how close we were. And I'm going like, oh my word, I am sitting close to royalty. And I'm looking at my, and I'm thinking like, wow, this is really, and I'm thinking like, wow, this is really cool. And I said, Lance, it doesn't mean anything. She doesn't even know who you are. <laughs> You're not sitting here because there's some great honor position. You got it from Marathon Oil Company. It wasn't anything on you. See, she didn't know me. There was no meaning to it. But can I tell you this? 
when you sit next to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, it has meaning. You know what the meaning is? That you're with him. See, I was with the queen, quote unquote. But here's what Colossians, listen to Colossians 2.12, buried with him. 2.13, alive together with him. Chapter 3 and verse 1, raised with him. 3.3, 3, hidden with him. Verse 4, appearing in glory with him. Do you see it? From the beginning to the end of the passion of Jesus. All of those things, you're with him. All, his death is your death. His burial is your burial. His resurrection is yours. His ascension is yours. His glory is yours. That's who you are because that's who he is. Where he is seated is where you are seated. You say, that's really awesome and it's starting to blow my mind. But so what? That's in heaven, right? (laughs) Pastor Walker, do you know what's going on in our culture, right? What about my life now? What about earth? What about tomorrow? Well, here's the upshot of it. When you're united with Jesus... When you believe and behave that he is the king sitting next to God's right hand, see, in heaven, then it will make a drastic difference on how you live out your life on earth. And the verse tells us how easy that is to understand. Look what it says. If you are, since you've been raised with him, here's the verbs. Seek, set, slay, verse 5. He says, if you cherish that, if you live that, if his identity is your identity, you know what's going to change? You're going to seek different things. If Jesus is raised and seated next to God and you believe that, you know what you're going to do to prove it? You're going to seek things in heaven. You're going to put, here's what it says, set your mind on things not on the earth, but where Christ is. So here's what it means. If you're seated with him, you're going to focus there. That's going to be what you want to do. That's where your mind is, and your mind controls your heart and how you live your life. And it'll change the way you emotively feel and how you think and what your priorities are. You know why? Because that's my reality. It's not just ethereal. It's not just make-believe. It's not just invisible and mystical. That's who I am. That reality is greater than the one you're standing in front of this morning because that's who you are. In other words... You set your mind and hearts on things that we truly are, the place where we really are in heaven, it'll change what you do on earth. Imagine this. Let me illustrate it. If you're going to move to Japan, I've never been to Japan except in Osaka once when I had to stop on a plane, but I've never been there to walk around or know what it's about. But if you're going to move to Japan, and it's only a few months away, you're going to start setting your mind on things of Japan, aren't you? And you might do it by seeking what? Seeking to find out whether you like sushi. So you go to a sushi place and you start eating it. And you start getting books and reading about the culture. And you might even watch sumo wrestling, although I wouldn't recommend it. And you're going to maybe even pick up a few, you know, phrases, Japanese phrases, so you can know where the restroom is or the bathroom or or the grocery store, or wherever you meet. You're going to try to do a few phrases. Why? Because when you're moving to Japan, you set your mind on things of Japan. Right? That, that's just obvious, isn't it? Well, the same thing happens spiritually. If your reality, where you really are, is heaven, that's where your mind needs to be. Have you ever said this? I'm so heavenly minded, I'm no earthly good. I've never seen it happen one time. I've never seen someone that heavenly minded. 
And Jesus says, the more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you should be. (coughs) So let me ask you, does where you sit in heaven have any impact impact on where you sit on earth? Listen to this. Psalm 1, 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. You see, if you're sitting in heaven, there are chairs that will be excluded to you. You will not choose. If I sit next to Jesus, I won't sit next to scorners, people who mock. I won't have the close relationship. I don't do that. You know why? Because he chooses my friends. He chooses the reality. This chair determines all other chairs. See? And he says when you do that, your mind is in heaven, your life is in heaven, Jesus is in heaven, your seat is in heaven. It'll change everything on earth. And you'll do it by setting your mind and seeking those things. And the third thing he says, lastly, in verse 5, is that you will put to death. See that? This is how powerful sitting next to Jesus is. You will now have the power, not your power, his power. You will have his resurrection power living in you that will be able to make you a serial killer spiritually. Put to death, murder, the Puritans used to say mortification. You will be able to kill all the things that are not helping you live your heavenly life. And that is namely sin. Did you see the verse? Put to death, listen, look what it says. What is earthly in you. See the contrast? This is heavenly who you are. Now get rid of all the earthly who you are. Not because we don't live here. Not because we don't have a culture. Not because we're not part of the influence here. But here's the reality. Listen. You live in this earth a different way than everyone else around you. Not because you're better. Not because you're superior. But because you've been raised with him. And what you live on earth and have inside of you is determined by your relationship to Jesus in heaven. Because we're seated next to him, we have the power to overcome sin. Now listen, namely which ones? We don't have time to touch them all, but the first three listed in verse 5 are all sexual sins. So the power to be united with Christ, it can be lived out in a culture like ours, listen to this, a culture like ours in a sexual revolution culture that has freedom, pleasure, and self-expression to be its greatest values. And the motto, true, be true to yourself, no matter how it defies God, no matter how it goes against Scripture and His design for your body, that's the culture we live in. And the power of Jesus in you, if He's really king in your life, will give you the ability to be able to say no to those things, put them to death, and you don't have to be defeated by, controlled by pornography, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and the list goes on, covetousness, and how you speak. See, you will be different on earth because of what you are in heaven. John Piper says, no one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promises of happiness for us. So how do I live out that life, Pastor Walker? Is it just holiness by subtraction and saying, oh, no, 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 to all the bad things and be moral? No, that's not the point because lost people who don't know Jesus can do that. And I wish more of them did. That's not what he's saying. No, this is a power that only comes from God, not one that you can work up. 
Now, you know what it is a power? It's a power that comes from being united with him, seated next to him, being in King Jesus. It's a power that comes because you died and were raised with him. And you know what that power does? It gives you a superior pleasure. The pleasure that comes from the intimacy and the relationship of being close to Jesus, that power allows you to see the true ugliness of your sin. It allows you to stop making the excuses and falling into what everybody else says. It says, this is what God says, and I see I'm not doing it, and I see how ugly it is in his holy sight. But also allows you to see how beautiful his holiness is. That he is seated next to God, and that his scars and his hands were for you and for your sin. See, it says You see the ugliness of your sin, the beauty of holy things, and it gives you the power as you weigh those two things out. out, The beauty of Jesus outweighs the promises of sin in your life. And out of pleasure for your relationship with him, you choose to say no to all the earthly things that aren't in keeping with who he is and where he is. So my friends, the solution to sin is not the removal of pleasure, it's the renewal of it. God wants you to find pleasure in all the things he's given us to enjoy, but he wants you to find it out of a pleasure and relationship primarily and supremely that you have with him. And in saying no to certain things and yes to others, you are making the statement every day, he is king. He is the one that is right at God's right hand and I am next to him. That's what it looks like when you believe he is king and you behave it at the same time. Let's pray. Father, what an important concept for us. Oh, let us look up this week. We're so prone to looking around, but there's no power in that. But when we look above and realize where you're seated, Lord Jesus, and that we have been seated with you in the heavenly places. And the power and position authority you have given to us in Jesus Christ so that we can live differently. And perhaps there are some believers who are here this morning, and like Peter, they believe it, but they have to admit that their belief and their behavior are not synced together. Father, help us to repent. Grant us brokenness, surrender, submission, that we might put to death what is left earthly in us, that we might live the heavenly life now in small things, in great things, in all things, for your great glory alone, the glory to the one who sits at the right hand of God. May all the praise and worship and honor be yours. For it's in your name, King Jesus, we pray. Amen.